Now more with Frank Gaffney. Welcome back, and a special welcome to our next guest. Her name is Susan Katz-Keating. She is a very accomplished, indeed award-winning writer and investigative journalist who has worked for all kinds of publications over the years, um, notably uh, as a military correspondent for People magazine. Uh, she has worked for Time. Uh, she has been a Washington Times uh, reporter. She is these days working for John Solomon's splendid Just the News organization as its chief national security correspondent. Um, we always appreciate having a chance to catch up with her, but particularly at a moment when, as we were doing with Robert Spencer a moment ago, we are sort of reflecting on uh, what happened to this country 20 years ago on uh, 9-11 and what, if anything, we've learned in the years since and how we are managing what seems to be um, a reprise of what befell us then, if we're not careful. Susan, thank you so much for joining us and for the reporting that you do for John and uh, Just the News. It's great to have you back with us. Good morning, Frank. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate uh, you having me on your show. Always happy to do so. You have an exclusive, I understand, that's just come out um, in the form of an interview with Ahmed Massoud, uh, the son of uh, a former much-lamented uh, assassinated uh, leader of the resistance to the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, tell us what he told you. Uh, it's uh, at justthenews.com right now. Well, Frank, it's just amazing the uh, what he and his people are doing. They are with, they call themselves the second resistance, but this is a, a carry-on of actually the Northern Alliance. They have been the holdout province against the Taliban. So these are the Panjiris in the Panjir uh, valley, they will not submit to the Taliban. And the Taliban came into the Panjir and they raised their flag and Masood and his people fled into the mountains, which actually is a great place for them to be. And what he told me very directly was, and he was speaking from, from uh, you know, undisclosed locations, um, he said, I will never surrender to the Taliban. I will fight them. And what he told me was that the Taliban, of course, want to be recognized by the international community, but he said they what they want is to oppress the Afghan people again. And from Masood's point of view, the Taliban are invaders. And what he said was, if someone invades our land, we will fight against it and defend ourselves and the rights of the Afghan people. And he he's very determined. Just uh, you know, in my my talking with him. Well, to his great credit, and uh, he has been associated with um, the former vice president of Afghanistan, uh, Saleh, who has uh, apparently um, sought refuge up in the Panjshir Valley as well. Um, what do we know about the nature of? Uh, their partnership and whether uh, it constitutes a real alternative to the Taliban and the kinds of horrors that we've seen from it in the past and that, as I was just talking about with Robert Spencer, are unfolding now before our eyes. Yes, it's, it's a legitimate partnership. Saleh is, of course, himself from Panjir, and the Panjiris are loyal to their to their homeland. And if you saw you know, the, the photos, you'd understand why it's an absolutely stunningly beautiful place. And they are they're just independent. They don't want to be ruled by anyone. 
they want to have their own fair government and a government for all, they say. Um, but Solly, Solly has teamed up with um, the uh, the group that Masood is running. And the Taliban have claimed, Susan Katzkating, that they have crushed this opposition, that they now are in control of the Panjshir Valley as they are in the rest of Afghanistan. And I believe there are reports uh, that uh, that has been accomplished in part thanks to military equipment left behind in Afghanistan by the United States, now in the hands of the Taliban. Uh, do you credit those reports? Uh, what What do you think is the actual status? What is What is Masood saying about uh, the status of his resistance? Frank, they are in the Panjshir, and they've you know they've raised their flag over the government buildings there. But I would say that they have not conquered Panjshir in the sense that the Panjshiris are continuing to fight them, and their their movement is is picking up steam. There's um, a, a lot of other movements around the country, not huge, not enough to overpower the Taliban, but definitely enough to give them a little bit of trouble. And the Taliban aren't going to like that because they have to they have to take control of the country and they're in Kabul and they don't really have I don't think they've got the finger on the pulse of Afghanistan now. And these are old, old hardline rulers who've now been installed. And as uh, my sources within the resistance tell me, they're out of touch. They're, they're just no longer really relevant for what the Afghan people want. This is um, unfortunately, I'm afraid, going to be a story we'll, we'll be learning bits and pieces of. Um, Susan, you have a feeling for the difficulties of getting accurate factual information out of Afghanistan at the moment. But it does seem likely, does it not, that the people of Afghanistan and their preferences in terms of how they're ruled or what kind of country they live in um, are not going to be um, well well received, shall we say, by the Taliban or, or respected by them. Uh, do you have a feeling for the extent to which those sentiments are being repressed already? And with what kinds of uh, means? Well, you know, the Taliban at core are a bunch of old brutes. So as you can imagine that they will they will meet any kind of resistance with their usual fashion, which you know is violence. And there have been some protests around the country where the, the Taliban have been violent against people, and and the world is seeing this. So their actions are belying what they're saying. On the world stage, which is, you know, we want to integrate and be part of the international community, but they're, they're in fact, they are who they are, you know, and, and that's how they operate, which is with an iron fist. And in, in Tangier, you've got Masood's movement very determined not to let them complete their takeover of Afghanistan. And they're, I think, the, um, the resistance is in a pretty good place because they're up in the mountains. And they can use the techniques that they used against the Soviets all those years ago, which is to just um, attack them from on high and bring them into the, the valley and attack them from on high. Um, that's an ancient tactic of, uh, of the Afghans, for sure. Um, let me ask you, uh, Susan, the, the question of um, what happens uh, next will presumably depend in part on uh, whether 
this resistance receives help from uh, the West, specifically, presumably from the United States. Are, are, uh, are they asking for such help in your conversations with uh, Ahmed Massoud, for example? Did he talk at all about um, what he would like the United States government to do uh, with respect to them uh, and or with respect to the Taliban? He did not make the, the official formal request, please help us. But I know that his, he and his people would, would like to have help, especially going into the winter. So they've got maybe a month before the cold weather sets in in a, in a pretty aggressive way. And they are also going to need not just supplies, but I mean, literally food and things to sustain them because it's up in the mountains, as you know, in Afghanistan, they have very, very harsh winter weather. So I think they've got about a, a month, and and they they would like help. But now I I know what your next question is going to be: is are we going to give it to them? And that's where I say, you know what? I I'm not seeing anybody coming out and saying we're going to do it. Now a couple of members of Congress, um, Waltz from Florida, has has really paid attention to what you know the Taliban. I mean the uh, the resistance is doing and is sympathetic toward them. But I don't know how that's going to transfer into you know action from the U.S. I, I'm, I'm tending not. Yeah. Well, I think you're right uh, to expect not, but uh, it does seem to me it's something that we ought to be pushing for, especially in light of um, what is now uh, the legacy of uh, the Biden strategic humiliation and defeat in Afghanistan. Susan, uh, you have been tracking, I know, various pieces of this story, and, and uh, I'm interested in one that uh, I've not heard of before, but for your reporting, I probably wouldn't have known about it. Um, and that is uh, the morning shuttle to Kandahar. What do you make of what that is about, um, flying out of Kabul International Airport, um, the old the only flight, civilian flight, I gather, that uh, is doing that. Uh, what do we know about it, and what is your informed speculation about its purpose? That, that's a real head-scratcher, isn't it? It's, it's odd. It's a daily flight, and it's the same time every day, 7.37, with only five seats available. And I know I tried to book flight myself on this on this flight a couple of times, and each time I tried to book, it came up with five seats available. So what I'm, what I'm going to guess is that these are... Um, Taliban seats, Taliban flights, and that they are they're taking material, money, anything valuable, something important to Kandahar, which is you know, a, a base for them. So I think they know at some level that they may not be able to hold Kabul for for the long term. And that they need may they may need to operate out of what for them is a safer base. So my my guess is that they're just they're taking vital stuff, and my instinct says money, but that's just me talking off the top of my head. Yeah, it's a, it's a daily thing. At the very least, it's a it's another base uh, for them, and has historically been. Um, you suggest that they may not feel confident in their ability to hold um, Kabul. That that strikes me as interesting and and somewhat surprising. I have to tell you. Um, Against what? Against what sorts of threats? Uh, is it uh, there have been some tiny demonstrations? And it takes nothing away from the courage of the people who have engaged in them. Are you anticipating, or do you think they are um, some kind of uprising from the people of Afghanistan? And uh, isn't it likely that they will be supported in suppressing 
anything like that um, by their Chinese Communist Party allies. Well, I, I think they've got a, a great friend in Pakistan, and, and, and we're seeing more and more of that. But the reason I think that they may not be able to hold on to Kabul is more based on this is a very sophisticated city. You've got a lot of very educated, savvy people in Kabul. They're, they're far more cosmopolitan than the Taliban are, obviously. And I, but I think the Taliban don't have, they don't have the skills in place, I don't think, to, to manage the infrastructure and just the, the, the daily, day-to-day life of, of a major city. And I think that's going to start to collapse, I think. Now, I, I could be wrong, Frank. But the way I'm reading it is they probably bit off a lot more than they're capable of handling at the moment. And I think that, that at some point, it just may be too much for them. Unless, of course, you know, they, they do have some rabbits, you know, that are pulling out of the hat in terms of you know, the Pakistanis. But I, I'm, I'm not confident that they can hold Kabul. Fascinating. Uh, well, from your lips to God's ears, as they say. Um, and I think we should do everything we can to help make that so. Um, when you look at um, what the Taliban is doing now with this new government that they've announced, uh, Susan, it, it, it seems to me, and, and Robert Spencer agreed, but I'd like to get your take on this as well, that uh, the selection of uh, individuals who had previously been in the Taliban government back in the day uh, when they were sponsoring or at least uh, giving free reign to al-Qaeda to plot and execute attacks against this country, and uh, Gitmo alums and um, the... Haqqani uh, network presence, um, that they are very strongly signaling this is going to be a jihadist government through and through. Um, We're told by some that it's just uh, a caretaker. But uh, what do you make of the selection of folks that are uh, now going to be leading Afghanistan and uh, what it portends for their ambitions of uh, further sort of Sharia supremacism, for want of a better. That's a great, that's a great descriptor right there, Frank. That's what it is. And when I saw that Anas Khani had been named Minister of the Interior, my, my eyes popped. They probably should not have. Like, I should have expected this. But this guy has a, what is it, a $5 million bounty on his head by the FBI He's on, the, he's on a, a most wanted list. This guy is an internationally designated, recognized terrorist. His family, the Haqqani Network, specializes in you know, kidnap, among other things. And they're, they're just, you know, they've got a pretty robust uh, terror arm going there. And these are the people who held Bo Bergdahl. These are the people who held those two professors who were kidnapped in Kabul maybe five or so years ago. If the, um, who taught at the American University. Like the, the Haqqanis are also believed to be holding the American contractor who disappeared in Afghanistan more than a year ago. So this this is a um, essentially a, a thug uh, network, and Anas Haqqani is a very powerful member of that. And here he is now on the world stage, and you know the international elite community is supposed to recognize him, and the, that's to me just jaw dropping. It just speaks volumes of essentially like how tone deaf the Taliban are in in appointing someone like this. Yeah, it's just it's a very interesting point. Um, they they clearly um, I think are contemptuous of our sentiment at this point. Uh, it it seems partly um, 
the you know hubris of victorious jihadists, but partly also a determination to maximize the humiliation of the United States for consumption, not least by their fellow jihadis. And so I, I, I don't know that I would chalk this up to they're just not uh, politically astute or attuned. I think they're playing to a different audience. And that's what worries me particularly is that uh, quite a number of these folks are going to be people who will be, you know, uh, very much inspired and catalyzed to further intensification of the jihad against us, among others, uh, by the Taliban's example. And it's, you know, um, well, it's hubris, <laughs> for want of a better term. Your thoughts? Well, it, and you brought up a, a great point that they're also making, you know, great propaganda noise about how they defeated the Americans. And I think one thing that's very important to point out is they, they actually, no, they didn't. They did not defeat us. We did not lose. We left. And that was a political decision. Militarily, they're like absolutely no match for the American military. It's, it, that's just not a question. But they, they politically were astute enough to just wait out until they had their until they had their moment, and they seized it, and they recognized who was in charge, who was calling the shots in Washington, and they they made their move, and it worked. Yep, it it did, and uh, again, I think it's going to beget uh, more of the same, unfortunately. Um, and Susan, uh, to to the extent you're tracking um, these folks who have been extricated from Afghanistan. Um, not so many Americans, as it happens, but a sizable number of um, Afghans. Uh, what is your reading of the vetting process that we have mounted? Uh, Robert Spencer expressed some concerns about it. I just wonder, um, do you have a sense that we know that the people that we have brought in in very large numbers into this country and are now in the process of distributing all over the land um, may have among them at least some who are potentially imbued with this same Sharia supremacist um, commitment, drive, ambition, and willingness to engage in jihad and furtherance of it. Well, again, you bring up a great point. Is what my sources are telling me is that at the at the airport when you saw how Kabul was in complete chaos at the airport. People were just getting on the airplane. We were just taking anybody we could just to grab them and get out of there. And there was no vetting in, in those moments. So people were, were just pushed onto those planes to clear the runway, clear the airport, get rid of the chaos as fast as possible. So some of those people have been found to have ties to terrorism. And they were, they were caught um, or they were flagged at Rammstein in Germany. So. <clears throat> I know that there are some who have been you know, sent to a detention facility just to, to find out more about them. But you're right. They, we didn't have a vetting process in place. And is there, again, I, I, this may be off your beat, but I, I know you worry about national security and homeland security as well. Is there any evidence that there is a process underway now to do the kind of vetting that uh, would result in, presumably, the deportation of people found to be problematic in this regard. 
I, I, I'm not sure that we're clear-eyed enough about the nature of the problem to do that kind of vetting, even if there is a process. But what's your reading on this, Susan, especially at a moment when the president is talking about spending billions of dollars to try to set such folks up? Not just those folks, obviously, but the the, the population of Afghans that we've brought into this country. Uh some of whom, uh, one hopes, are people who you know we actually would want here, people that helped us in Afghanistan, people who um, sacrificed a lot uh, to serve with us or uh, at least help us in various ways. But it's that other group that uh, I think we can't deny is probably here in some number. And do you have any sense that uh, the Biden administration is is capable of, let alone actually undertaking this kind of scrutiny, vetting, and if necessary, removal of uh, potential bad actors? Boy, that's a really scary question, actually, because I I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Now, of course, there are many Afghans here who absolutely need to be here. These are people, as you said, who who helped us, but they they were uh, very valuable. They saved American lives. They protected our soldiers and our you know, airmen and Marines. They absolutely, I think, have a, a a right to be here. You know, just as a as a, as a loyalty payback. If you helped us. We're going to help you because if we don't, you're going to lose your lives. You're going to, you're going to die in a very ugly way. So that's one group of people. But then the other group is like we don't know who they are. You know how? What are their um, what's their background? What's their affiliation? What are their what is their intent? So it, it, it's got to be a very um, you know, measured process, as you said. It's, you know, I, I really don't know exactly how that's been done. I don't either, and it scares me that you don't. <laughs> but I hope that you'll be using those uh, highly honed investigative journalistic skills to uh, explore this and come back to us to uh, provide any insights that you get. And thank you also for um, the insights arising from your contacts with uh, Ahmed Massoud. I, I very much believe that what he is there trying to do uh, in the Penjir Valley is in our interest, and I hope that we will find a way to support, uh, enable him to succeed in ultimately liberating that country from the Taliban. Uh, Godspeed to you and, and to him and his team. Thank you, Susan, for your time today and for the great work you do at Just the News. Um, come back to us again, if you would, with reports and updates. We so appreciate your time. I hope the rest of you will come back to us again tomorrow, same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening. From the nation's capital, you've been listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Night after night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat 
at Amazon.com. This is Frank Gaffney with the Secure Freedom Minute. As we commemorate the murder of nearly 3,000 Americans 20 years ago, the people who made the 9-11 attack possible have already begun to celebrate that act of jihad. The Taliban just kicked their party into high gear with the announcement of their new government. Don't be fooled by claims that it is an interim one. What matters is that it is exclusively comprised of Sharia supremacists. Some of them in charge the last time the Taliban were in power. Others are Gitmo alumni. And the minister entrusted with internal security is a Haqqani jihadist with a $5 million U.S. bounty on his head. The question occurs, how many of the Afghan refugees Joe Biden has just brought here share those jihadis' commitment to Sharia and its requirement that violence be used to force the world to submit to that totalitarian code? This is Frank Gaffney.